Our scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 19. If you are new to reading the Bible, John is found in the New Testament, so in the second, third part of the Bible. And if you have a physical Bible with you, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small verses are the verses. So we're starting in John chapter 19, and we'll read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord, speaking, written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, 
let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Pillar. Good morning. Is this on? Yeah. Okay. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you for loving us so much that you would die the death that you died for us on the cross, that we might be reconciled to you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being with us today, for preserving the word passed down to us and testified to us by you, that we might know you, that we might know the word become flesh. Lord, we lift up to you today the people of Ukraine. We ask for peace in that land, that you would stay the oppressor, that you would protect the widow and the orphan. Lord, we also pray today for Muslims that have been driven from their lands by violence and have been spread all over the world. We pray particularly for those from Afghanistan and Iraq who have come to America. We pray that you would open their ears, that you would give them encounters with Christians who would turn them to you, point them to you, the real savior of the world. And Lord, we pray for the leaders of our country that you would give them wisdom to lead us well. In your name we pray, amen. amen. I am deeply humbled 
to have the opportunity to bring you the word today from John 19. I figure if I only preach one sermon in my life, let it be about the crucifixion, which is the turning point of history. I have to pause and wonder at that incredible statement, let it be about the crucifixion. If you were a subject of Rome in John's day, you would hear that word, crucifixion, and see us gathered here in celebration of it and recognize that something, really everything, had changed. Hear it this way, let it be about the rack, let it be about the guillotine, let it be about the electric chair or the hangman's noose, instruments of torture and death. Make no mistake, the cross, the Roman cross, was an instrument of unbelievable torture, of cruelty and savagery, perhaps unparalleled in the history of man. And yet today, it is perhaps the most universally recognized symbol of the Christian faith. And while it is worn in many blasphemous ways, and yes, even idolatry, we can see in the power of the cross an image of mercy and salvation. Consider the images from the battlefield in Ukraine. If you see this next picture, you'll see the Red Cross emblazoned on an ambulance. And though this image is often tragically and terribly ignored, the Red Cross speaks to the act of mercy and salvation going on within, and it's an appeal to the enemy to stay their hand to spare the vehicle. And so we look back today to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as relayed in John's gospel as God's great act of mercy and spiritual salvation toward us. On this hinges our salvation. So if you're here today and you've never given much thought to what the cross might mean, I'm really glad you've joined us. And if you're here today and you've got a cross tattoo or a cross pendant and you've heard about the cross since the day you were born, I'm really glad you're here too because the cross is worth celebrating, whether this is your first encounter with it or just the most recent in a long series of encounters. So we look back to the crucifixion with the opportunity to understand why John describes in his narrative something that still has power today. It's a chance for us to let the eyewitness John teach us about this singular turning point in history, how an instrument of tortuous death became a worldwide symbol of mercy and salvation. Now, many of you know I was born and raised in Pakistan. My parents were missionaries there. And in that context, the cross has a very different meaning. If we look back to the cross and see the death of Jesus there, Muslims look back to the cross and see perhaps an example of God's cleverness uh, because their account of the cross goes something like this, that Jesus is raised on the cross, he's crucified, and then God miraculously takes him to heaven and there's different accounts of who gets put in his place, but a very common one is that Judas of Iscariot is put on the cross by God in Jesus' place, and the Jews don't know it. In fact, the disciples don't know it. It's a great comeuppance story of God's revenge on man, on the devious Judas tricked and switched in there. So this would be their great switcheroo. Now that is important to remember in order to understand this. The idea of substitution, of a good man for a bad man, or in the Muslim's account, the bad man for the good. Keep that in mind. It's key to understanding why 2,000 years later, we look back to the cross, not as an account of God's trickery, but as an account of the turning point of history, the per perfect fulfillment of God's righteous justice and amazing love. So John 19 is full of intense dialogue, striking descriptions, references to the apostles, uh, references to the prophets and attestations to witnesses. He makes a lot of emphasis on witnesses, but it can be summed up as it has been summed up in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And this supports John's central thesis through the whole text, which he states in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And now our time in John, start to finish, has been summed up by that simple phrase, Jesus is life. Yes. And the main point of our sermon today is part of unpacking how Jesus is life. In short, Jesus' death means life. In showing how such an insane proposition is in fact the truth of God, we're going to follow John through his narrative, see where it fits as the centerpiece of the scriptures at the very hinge of history, see how God made a way for us to have peace with him in this death, and we'll examine three different responses from the text, from the religious leaders, from Pilate, and from Joseph and Nicodemus that call us to respond to the death of Jesus today. John's account of the crucifixion builds seamlessly from chapter 18, where it opened with the arrest of the Garden of Gethsemane through the trial before the high priest, cross-cut with Peter's denials, which we talked about last week, and then sees Jesus brought before Pilate. Now, Pilate's already interrogated him once in chapter 18, and then we pick up the account today with a second interrogation in John 19. So our first section, you could call, would be suffered under Pontius Pilate. And it will move through here through three distinct movements, each punctuated by incredible acts of violence. And we're going to look at that violence because John contains it in his narrative for a reason. And each movement witnesses to who Jesus is, and each sustains John's central point that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. That this is no common execution. It's not even a mistake in God's plan. This is really the point. This is how God achieves salvation for us. So the first movement might well be titled, titled, Suffered Under Pontius Pilate. It's taken from the Apostles' Creed. And it opens with the Roman governor having Jesus flogged and ends with verse 16, when Pilate hands him over to be crucified. John's narrative takes your breath away with the vicious acts of violence it contains. And he uses these violence to punctuate dramatic dialogue. And the dialogue contains a rich and somber irony to help us see his point. He wants his readers to take something away, something significant from the pain and suffering Jesus endures. The initial violence of flogging, thorns, and the mocking of the Roman soldiers sets the scene for Pilate to declare to the religious leaders and to us today indelible truths about who Jesus is. Pilate says to the crowd, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate had just had Jesus whipped. He had just had him mocked, shamed, and humiliated by his whole Roman guard. This is not the treatment you owe an innocent man. So the actions and the words create a dissonance that we need to look at. So the words might belie the treatment of Jesus, but they speak to a truer truth than even Pilate knew. Though this was a farce of a trial, there's no due process. The witnesses don't support the accusations. It's all made up just to get Jesus to the cross Pilate himself is taking the stand, and he's declaring to the ages and to us today, Jesus Christ is the guilt-free man. And that's significant. And he goes further. As Jesus is brought out, he declares, behold the man. Pilate again testifies to truths he doesn't see and he doesn't believe. He's still seeking to have Jesus released, though. And you can see in this almost a condemnation with some irony. He's trying to get the religious leaders to say, look, Poor fellow, he's got blood streaming down him. He's got a crown of thorns. He's dressed up in mock regal robes. Is this really a threat? 
Can we just move on from this? Besides, it's early in the morning. Come on, we're done here, right? See the poor fellow. Is this really who you want me to crucify? And what does the crowd respond? Crucify, crucify. So Pilate is speaking to a deeper reality, though, in that he says that Jesus is the man. He is the man. He's fully man. He's also the guilt-free man, as said earlier. But fully man in his suffering, in bearing what he's, his burden of humiliation there before them, he is fully man. At this, the religious leaders drop their initial charges. This is no longer about a threat to Rome. This is clear. This is about blasphemy, and that's what they want the point to be. This is about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. Now, with this new knowledge, Pilate also tips his hand and reveals that he's afraid. And that fear makes him want to win Jesus' release even more. But that's also the fear that gives him, shows his weakness to the religious leaders. Playing on his fears, the Jewish leaders win him over by saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. And so his fear overcoming what reservations he might have had, he makes up his mind. Jesus is going to die. But not before Pilate utters yet again a deeper, truer truth than he can understand, where he brings him out and declares to the Jews, behold your king. It's meant as a jest, a cruel jest, both mocking the Jews, look at your king, I've humiliated him, and at Jesus, look at you who claim to be king, you humiliated here. But in relaying these words, John wants us to know, Pilate really is saying the truth. Jesus is king of the Jews. And he's shown this up through the whole book by story and by dialogue. Here in Pilate's proclamations, he declares to us that Jesus is innocent, fully the man, and also fully the king. As we transition to the second movement, it opens with Jesus bearing his cross to the place of the skull where he'll be crucified. And then, and it closes with that crucifixion. Look at verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. It's a word that might not carry a whole lot of meaning to us other than this context of the cross, but we need to recognize how much horror is summed up there that the readers in John's day would have seen. To be crucified was to die slowly of asphyxiation, where every breath was a choice between pulling yourself up on pierced hands and pierced feet or drowning in the, in the fluid building in your lungs. This could go on for hours, even days. There are accounts of multi-day crucifixions where the man slowly fades. It would, in a lot, a lot of ways, depend on the violence done to the victim prior to his crucifixion, on how long he could survive up there in such immense agony. Pilate, in this passage, he doubles down on his original insult and an unwitting declaration, having assigned now in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek put on the cross, declaring Jesus again, the king of the Jews. John takes pain here to record the fulfillment of scripture through this section in Jesus' death and show again, as he has throughout the gospel, the heart of Jesus. Verse 25 through 27 tells us, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Why this aside? It seems to break the narrative flow. Is it merely to show that Jesus took care of his family on the cross? It's not less than that because Jesus does take care of his family on the cross, but also more. 
John is bookending Jesus' ministry. The last time John introduced us to Mary was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry at the first sign, the wedding at Cana. And what was the sign at Cana? That he turned water into wine. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on John, tells us that we should think back to that story early on in the gospel when Mary pointed out to Jesus that the wine had run out. She didn't understand then that his time had not yet come, but she knew the, the way to get things done was for people to do what he said. And now she doesn't understand now that his time has come at last, that this is where it was all leading, that his calling to turn the water of human life into the rich wine of God's love was now at last being fulfilled. So what happens next? Jesus thirsts. And he receives some wine on a sponge. What is John saying here? Has Jesus been proven a liar? Remember, it was Jesus who told the woman at the well, come to me, all ye who are thirsty. Drink from me and you'll never be thirsty again. How is he now thirsty? He who called himself the vine, he thirsts? This is not some failure in the story. This is the point. John shows us that here at the central moment of history, Jesus Christ, God become man, has come to us, borne our sins, carrying the shame, the ridicule, the hurts and pains, the sins of the whole world, and the thirsting, and the wanting, and the hunger, and always seeking for more. He has carried that to the cross to do what only he could do. And so the conclusion of the second movement is perhaps the most weightiest words that have ever been spoken by human mouth, not less so for being spoken by Jesus on the cross, the only God-man. It is finished. What was finished on the cross? In the death of Jesus Christ, fully man, fully innocent, but bearing our pains, he has fulfilled God's righteous wrath towards sin. It's fully satisfied. That's what's finished. God is just, and his justice demands a penalty for sin. And the sin, and sin's penalty is very simple, death. But God is also love. And in his perfect love, he ordained that he would himself bear the penalty for the sins of his creatures and make a way for us to have peace with him through Jesus' death on the cross. No penalty left for sin because Jesus paid it all. It is finished. Now the final movement of John 19 is true denouement to the account of the crucifixion. Now, denouement is the literary word for the conclusion of a story, and it literally means to untie a knot. And John is, make, is untying the knot of the climax in this portion, allowing us to see and make sense of its meaning. The last section opens with a final insult from the Jews and the violent breaking of the criminal's legs in order to, for what? To preserve their holiday. The historical record bears out the Roman tradition of breaking legs, and this is, again, an image of intense violence. We can only imagine what it would take in terms of the bludgeoning to break someone's legs as they're suspended on the cross over you, and the horrible deaths that would follow. But Jesus is already dead. He's already died. And to make doubly sure, the soldier pierces the Lord's side with a spear, rupturing the asphyxiated lungs and the heart and pouring out blood and water. John is not here. He's not the witness that attests to this. He cites another. He's potentially, we don't know from the, from the scriptures, but it's possible that he's already seeing Jesus dead, removed Mary from the scene to spare her what came next, uh, seeing the soldiers approaching to break the legs and knowing that this was not where they needed to be. But he cites another, and that witness bears testimony to what he saw, and his testimony is true. 
And this is written so that you may believe that Jesus died and was buried. Now, the account concludes with two characters, uh, one previously known to us, Nicodemus, and another freshly introduced, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple. Now, Jesus' disciples are all fled, gone into hiding. But two who previously were afraid now come out of their fear, step out of the shadows, go to Pilate, gain the body, and then, treating it with dignity and respect, bury it in, as Matthew's gospel tells us, in Joseph's own tomb. John has already told us, as Jesus declared on the cross, that it is finished. So what's the point of these extra details? Why does he include this, of the violent piercing, the witness, and the tomb? John is establishing the facts to make clear to any doubters that in space, time, and history, Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and buried. This crucifixion happened. It really did. It was really the Son of God who hung there on that tree, and it was the Son of God who gave up his life. And it was the Son of God whose body poured forth blood and water, and it was the Son of God who was buried in a tomb cut in the rock. We leave the summary now to look at some of the other witnesses John calls to the stand to establish the facts of the crucifixion and who testify to its ultimate meaning. Many years ago, a Muslim convert came to my dad, and they were doing a Bible study together, and he told my dad, I love the Gospels, and I love the Epistles, but this Old Testament stuff, let's just leave that behind. And I think that's a a refrain many of us sort of recognize at times where we're like, I don't want to read Lamentations right now. But my father said, I understand that. You really need to read the Old Testament. He said, no, 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 the Old Testament is all laws and God's wrath and rules. That's like what I was rescued out of in Islam. I'm free now. I want Jesus. And my dad said, you really need to read the Old Testament. So they parted ways, and we're meeting again a few months later, and a convert comes in, and he says, you're not going to believe it. Guess what I found in the Old Testament? It all points to Jesus. He's there on every page. That's why it's included, and that's why it's Scripture. Praise God, the, t- the prophets, they do point to Jesus. And these, this is no systematic account of the prophecies, but let's take a, a moment to examine some of the ones John calls in this chapter as witnesses. He calls them to the stand just like Pilate, who testified unknowingly, and the witness at the cross who testified knowingly. They also testify to Jesus' death. And we do this today to strengthen our faith, to see how Christ's death was foretold in the scriptures through the prophets, and it is the hinge of history. So first, we look at 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 9. And this tells of the Lord discussing with the prophet Samuel what it means that the people have asked for a human king to rule over them. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So the Apostles John inclusion of the rejection of Jesus of King, where the religious leaders cry out, we have no king but Caesar, echoes this, and his readers would have seen the echo. And we also need to see that not only do they reject Jesus as king, but we all also reject and seek other kings. We reject the kingship of God in our lives. Psalm 22:18 is cited by John to draw attention to this very messianic psalm in which David, speaking in the spirit, foretold, saying, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And we see that fulfilled in the soldiers at the cross, casting lots for Jesus' tunic. 
as we journey next week towards Easter, I encourage you to look again at Psalm 22 and see in, G- John, in David's cries there a foreshadowing of the Messiah and of Jesus' death on the cross. Psalm 69, 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and my, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And Psalm 42, 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Both of these psalms, again, would have been known to John's readers in the early church and are replete with messianic imagery. And we see them fulfilled specifically in John 19. And it's not just that David's prophecies regard a future king. They regard a future king who, like him, and as Pilate declared, would be king of the Jews. Psalm 34.20 has David prophesying, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is a prophecy both of Jesus and a fulfillment of the type set in Exodus 12:46 and Numbers 9:12 concerning the Passover lamb that it shall be eaten in one house you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones John includes this to highlight to us that Jesus is not just fulfilling David's prophecy he is fulfilling it to be the true and better Passover lamb now what was the Passover lamb it was the lamb sacrificed In Egypt, when the Israelites were enslaved, the blood was spread on the lintel and the doorposts, and seeing it, the destroying angel passed over those homes and went and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Here, Jesus is offered up as the Passover lamb. He gives his blood as an offering for the salvation of the world. Isaiah 53.9 is our final prophecy cited by John. And they make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus has been declared guilt-free by Pilate. He's crucified with criminals and then buried in the rich man Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He fulfills this prophecy perfectly. And this, the cross, is what Isaiah was looking to. This is what he was pointing towards. We turn now to John's responses. What are we supposed to do with this, the cross? The first example we see are John's religious leaders. And that's one example of how we could respond to Jesus on the cross. Now, they don't know what's going on here, but whatever is going on here, they hate it. They've refused to listen. They've stopped up their ears. They drown out the words of God. They're obsessed with protecting their carefully constructed creed, their power, and their privileges. They're too obsessed with their religion, their rules, and their own self-righteousness. And so they're too pure to enter a Gentile's court. They make Pilate come out to them. But they're not too pure to condemn the Son of God because he might upset their carefully constructed creed. It's easy to stand from our vantage point and say, how could they have missed it? How do they miss the irony here? How can they say, we have no king but Caesar, blaspheming themselves and condemn a man to blasphemy? How could they not be ashamed? But are we really any better? How quick are we to condemn others in our hearts and measure them against our own self-set standards? How easily do we seek other kings than the king of kings? And how often do we still the voice of the Holy Spirit when it's speaking to us? How much of our religion is just the traditions of man trumped up as the teachings of God? The simple fact is, though, that we can't get rid of these kings of our heart. We have no more power over the false idols of our heart than these religious leaders had over Caesar. 
They could own him or disown him. He was their king. There was nothing they could do to get rid of him. And that is why we need the cross. For Jesus Christ, in his crucifixion at the hinge of history, has undone the power of sin over us. He has freed our hearts. The incredible thing is we're all like the religious leaders. And if we want to revel in their hypocrisy, we have to turn with them also in repentance. The Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost to almost the exact same crowd that cried out, crucify, crucify. He told them, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we said that today in our catechism. And Luke tells us that the crowd was cut to their hearts and cried out, what shall we do? And Peter told them, Repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, and in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if this is you today, and I know in some ways it is me today, if there are other kings in your heart that you need to confess, other saviors or other Caesars, please don't wait to respond in repentance. Please find me or another one of our elders after the service. I would like nothing better than to pray with you because the God who died on the cross for us has set us free from those kings. We're praying to the God who has already paid it all. Pontius Pilate shows us another response. He talks with Jesus, interrogates him at length, and begins to gain an inkling about what might be going on here. But in the end, he's afraid. And he's afraid about what it might cost him to do the right thing. And so he perpetrates an act of hideous injustice, fearing what it would mean, what it would cost him in terms of his career, in terms of his position, power, to treat seriously and honestly with the claims of Jesus Christ. He hides his fear. How? He hides it in cynical mockery, in bluster, insulting the Jews and insulting Jesus. It's all to hide his own guilt. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're hearing the claims of Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've heard them for a long time. But you begin to know what's going on here. You're afraid of what it might cost you to follow him, to surrender your life to him. Maybe you've talked with him for a long time. You've interrogated him at length and you've interrogated his claims. You might even claim to understand him. But your life says differently. And deep inside, it's because you're afraid. Because you hide it with mocking, bluster, or perhaps an air of cynicism or sin. And then there's Nicodemus and Joseph. And their response shows us the path out of Pilate's fear. Nicodemus before was so afraid that he went for a secret interview with Jesus at night. He was afraid of his peers. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus. Joseph also, it says, was a secret believer, afraid again of his fellow religious leaders, afraid of what it would mean to say, I'm with Jesus. But now though, Jesus' disciples are scattered. They're all in hiding. And these two step out of the shadows. What changes for them? They were afraid and now they're not. Or maybe they're still acting in their fear. What they've seen here, though, is God's love. And maybe this is you today. You're not sure what's going on, but you know that everything has changed and you just want to be with Jesus. Let me tell you, he is beckoning you with open arms and he wants you to come to him. John, writing much later in life, would say in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. How do you ask, does love cast out fear? John tells us, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
If you're afraid of what of following Christ and what it might mean to give your life to him, and you look ahead to the future, and you see only more heartache and loneliness, look to the cross. If you're afraid at work, and every day you fear certain colleagues and what it might mean to take a stand for Jesus in the workplace, look to the cross. If your fear at work is one of monotony and meaninglessness, and you wonder why you should just continue to put up with this drudgery, look to the cross. If you're afraid of your children, mothers or fathers, you're afraid and you dread that next terrible feeding or their uncontrollable tantrums and anger, look to the cross. If you're afraid because you're not even sure if you're a good mom or dad, look to the cross. If you're afraid of what tomorrow holds for you and wonder why you should get out of bed, look to the cross. And if you're overcome by your own loss and trapped in the, in the fear of your own grief, look to the cross. The answer to our fears is to be with Jesus, to know him in his suffering and to know the love of God made perfect for you. His love knows no bounds and his love can cast out your fears too. If you're struggling in your marriage, in your relationships, in your MC or your fight club with your friends at work here in church, look to the cross and point each other there also. His love perfectly displayed on the, ca on the cross casts out our fears. Let me tell you, you can trust him. He is good, he loves you, and he's already given his life for you. Nothing you might give to follow him will prove to have been worth more than what you gain by surrendering your life to him. Islam is right about one thing. The cross does represent the great switcheroo. But rather than showing how God tricked sinful men and put Judas in Jesus' place, the incredible thing is, it was Christ who took our place. When he declared, it is finished, when he died the death he died, he fulfilled perfectly the penalty we deserve for our sins. All we have to do is turn to him in humble repentance. And I haven't dwelt today on the resurrection because that's not our passage for today. But praise God, this, the cross, is only half the story. And while it's the hinge of history, the resurrection is the next part. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for us sinners is only half of the story. He did not stay dead. The tomb where Joseph and Nicodemus laid him is empty today. And that's why the apostles could look to the cross with joy. That's why it's a symbol of mercy and salvation, not no longer a symbol of torture and death. It's not some grim story of God's revenge upon man. It's the story of God's justice poured out on his own son for our salvation. On this, our faith is built. This is our solid rock, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was foretold by the prophets, attested to by the witnesses there, and attested to by the power of changed lives. Lives no longer characterized by fear, but lives where the fear has been cast out by the love of God. Lives like Joseph and Nicodemus. And this is our faith. This is what we proclaim. And these truths demand a response. And we get to respond now by going uh, before the Lord in communion to celebrate his death as he told us. Thank you.